to meet your church and to meet you. And even though I don't get to talk to you very much hearing you back, at least to see your faces and have this time of fellowship with you. I thank you for your interest in Bible study and the Word of God. And today we're going to be looking at a pretty good sized chunk of Scripture, God willing, from Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 19, basically from the birth of Moses to the, to the coming to Mount Sinai. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we'll jump right in. First of all, the Genesis link. When we come to Exodus, the name Exodus is a Greek word from the Greek Old Testament name of the book that means the road out, exodos. Exodus really is a continuation of the story of Genesis. And we have a couple of scriptures that point to that. First of all, in Genesis chapter 15, God speaks to Abram before his name was changed to Abraham and says to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. And then in verse 16, God says, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. This is a remarkable promise of God because He's already told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that He will give His descendants this land, which we now know as the land of Israel. And yet here in this promise to Abraham, God says that's not going to happen for a very long time and it's not going to happen without a great deal of trouble first. Your descendants will go into a land that's not theirs. Four centuries will pass. They will be slaves But in a certain time that I've told you in advance, they will come out and then I will bring them to this land and give them this land. This is a real test of faith and its fulfillment is a real affirmation of faith showing us that we can trust God in all that He says because what He says, He brings about. When God tells Abraham 400 years, this may be a round number. According to Exodus chapter 12 verse 40, It was 430 years, but this is speaking generally about 400 years round number. When he says they'll come out in the fourth generation, that may mean four long lifetimes of about 100 years each, because in Chronicles there actually are ten generations, although in Exodus chapter 6 verses 16 and following, we have the generations of Levi who went into Egypt as one of the twelve sons of Jacob, his son Kohath. His son or descendant Amram, and his son or descendant Moses. So Moses is the fourth of four notable generations. He's the fourth of four long hundred-year lifespans. But uh, these numbers may be used in rather symbolic fashion. There's a Genesis link also at the end of the book of Genesis. Not only is God promising to Abraham about 2000 B.C. that they will go into a land of slavery and then come out, But at the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, the last chapter, verse 26, ends the life of Joseph with this statement. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph had asked the children of Israel to promise him before he died that when they came out someday, because he believed God's promise that he had made to Abram, When they come out someday, they will bring his bones out and bury him in the land of promise. And later, when they come out of Egypt, we read in Exodus that they brought out Joseph's bones. And later in Joshua, they bury him in the land of promise. 
There's an important lesson for us in this passage from Genesis 15 and its fulfillment. And that is that God always keeps His promises. This is just as true for us as it was for Abraham. But there are several points or qualifications about this that are important also to remember. First of all, God keeps His promises in His own time. It was a long time after Abram was promised the land before they finally get it. But God didn't forget He does it in His own time. Sometimes we get in a hurry, but it'll happen in God's timing. He does it second in His own way. They didn't know how this would occur. They didn't know the details of the circumstances. But God knew what He planned, and when He was ready, He did it just as He intended. And in our lives, He'll keep His promises in His own way, not always the way we expect. Third, He does it through His own man or woman. He used Moses in this instance. In our lives, he may use an acquaintance, he may use a spouse, he may use a stranger, he may send an angel. There are all kinds of ways God works, but he does it through his own appointed servant. And the other side of that coin is, you may be his servant in his plans for someone else. And so we need to be ready to be used by God, number four, to his own glory. God always keeps his promises in his own time, in his own way, through his own person, and to his own glory. When the children of Israel went into Egypt, uh, Philip, go to the slavery uh, slide, if you would, with the city on it being built there. The, 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 the Bible says that they go into, into Egypt after Jacob's children, descendants, and families go to Egypt, and time passes. Another Pharaoh is born, we learn in Exodus chapter 1, who did not know Moses. This doesn't just mean he wasn't a friend of Moses. It means he didn't know anything about Moses. He, he, he didn't know the story of, I'm sorry, Joseph. Who did not know Joseph? He didn't know the story of Joseph. He didn't know how these people got here. He didn't know they were God's people. And he has a heart that is not sympathetic to the Israelites. <clears throat> and so this Pharaoh, and the word Pharaoh, by the way, is not a proper name, but a title. It means in Egyptian, the great house. He's the Pharaoh. And there were many pharaohs. But this pharaoh who did not know Moses says, I keep saying Moses, Joseph is what I'm trying to say. Joseph, pardon me Joseph. He says, he says these, these children of the Hebrews are multiplying so fast, they will soon become a threat to our national security. And if an enemy comes against us, the Hebrews will join them and help overthrow us. And so he decides to take a preventative measure and he makes slaves of the Hebrew people. They become slaves for a long period of time. We don't know exactly how long that, that was. In their slavery, they were oppressed by the Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 1, verse 14 says, They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And so it's a bitter slavery. This is not simply household slaves such as later happens in Rome. But it's a bitter slavery in the field, making bricks, gathering straw sometimes. Later the straw is furnished to them. But they're, they're in slavery in a bitter way, of, in bondage to the Egyptians. Time passes. <clears throat> we don't know who these pharaohs are. Egyptian history had a peculiar habit, as most ancient historians did, of erasing from their history everything that was bad for their own government. And so we don't read about Moses in the histo history of Egypt. There are some little hints that may relate to the Hebrew people, 
But basically they erased everything that was not pleasant for them and showed them as the conquerors. Some people believe that this uh, Pharaoh who is first on the scene is Amos in the 18th dynasty, or 19th dynasty rather, and that the Pharaoh who is there during the plagues is Tutmos. You notice both those Pharaoh's names have the word Mos in the end of them, which is Egyptian for son, S-O-N, and may be related to the name Moses. Some people think the Pharaoh of the Exodus is Ramses II, he lives about 1300. These other two lived about 1450. And I think most conservative Bible scholars probably put the Exodus about 1430 to 1450. But time passes. The children of Israel are in slavery. <clears throat> and then Moses is born. When, the child, when Moses is born, the Pharaoh has increased his oppressive measures. Not only are the Israelites now slaves... But he's decided that there's such a danger, he's going to have to take action against their future as a people. And so he orders, first of all, the Hebrew, I'm sorry, the Egyptian midwives to kill every boy, baby that is born from Hebrew women. But the Bible says the two main midwives in charge of midwifery in Egypt feared God and they wouldn't do that. And when Pharaoh asked them, what's going on here? Why haven't you obeyed me? They say, well, these Hebrew women are so sturdy and strong that when they go into labor, they have their children before we get there and the children are gone when we arrive. And whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that didn't work. And then Pharaoh says, okay, we'll change the rules. I've sent out an order that every Hebrew mother who has a boy baby must kill it, drown it in the Nile. And they don't necessarily listen to Pharaoh either. And particularly one woman who is named Jochebed or Jochebed doesn't listen to Pharaoh's order to kill her baby son. She fears God. She seemingly knows the stories of her ancestors and perhaps even the story of Abraham and the promise God had made him that we read earlier. So Moses is born. When he's born, his mother hides him for three months. You, see, you can use your imagination in a chest of drawers maybe. I don't know. Maybe she put him in a box behind the stove. She hid him under the bed. Whenever there's an Egyptian around, Moses is nowhere in sight. And he must have been a quiet infant for the first three months. But at three months, he seems to be a little more active. And it's harder to hide him successfully. And so she makes a little boat. In some versions called an ark. And it's made out of bulrushes or papyrus. And she puts her baby boy in this little boat, sets him in the Nile amidst the, the uh, papyri that's growing so he won't float off somewhere. And she leaves her daughter, Miriam, to watch and see what happens. In the providence of God, this is the place where Pharaoh's daughter, some people think this may be a, an Egyptian princess by the name of Hatshepsut, who later becomes a Pharaoh herself. But she comes down to this place regularly to wash. And on this day, as she comes down to bathe, she sees this little boat. And she hears the baby crying. And she sends her servants to bring it to her to see. When she opens it, he's crying. And she is touched and says, this must be the child of one of the Hebrew women. And she wants to adopt him as her own child. Miriam, on cue, runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, would you like me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse this child for you? And she says, yes, that would be good. So Miriam goes and gets her own mother, who is Moses' mother, 
And Moses' mother is paid to take care of her own baby who grows up as the adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament tells us that Moses at a later date when he becomes of age did not consider the riches of Egypt equal to the treasures of Christ and that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. As the heir to Pharaoh's throne, Moses could have had anything he wanted, but he chose when he knew his identity, which his mother must have taught him as a child, to take his place as a man with the people of God, the Hebrew people, even though that was risky for him. And so Moses becomes Pharaoh's daughter, this defiant mother, has made that possible. The birth of Moses and the birth of Jesus have much in common, by the way. And we quickly just notice something about that. Moses is born a child of promise. Abraham had been told that God would raise up this deliverer in his own time. Jesus is the child of many promises throughout the entire Old Testament. Israel was in bondage when Moses was born. Israel was in bondage or in occupation to the Romans when Jesus was born. A wicked king was ruling in Egypt, the Pharaoh of Moses' day. And a wicked king, Herod, was ruling in Israel when Jesus was born. The baby boys were murdered by Pharaoh. And when Jesus is born and the wise men tell Herod about it, he sends out an order to kill all the baby boys around Bethlehem, two years old and under. There were wise men in the time of Moses who later imitate some of his miracles. They were evil people on the side of Pharaoh. In Jesus' birth, there were wise men from the east who were God-fearing people, and they helped preserve the life of the baby Jesus. And the special infant in Moses' case and Jesus' case was rescued by God for God's purpose. In Moses' time, to lead the people out of bondage to Egypt. In Jesus' time, the baby grew up to become the one who leads his people of all nations out of bondage to sin. And then I didn't put it on this little note, but uh, we can add a seventh thing, that the wicked king dies in both stories, which frees the baby to come back uh, to a more normal state. Moses does grow up, and our next uh, part of the outline is Moses frees and flees. One day when Moses is older, he uh, goes out walking among the children of Israel where they're working. And he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. Moses looks around, doesn't see anybody, kills the uh, Hebrew, kills the Egyptian slave master, and buries his body in a shallow grave in the sand. The next day, Moses goes out walking again among his people. This time, he sees two Hebrew slaves fighting each other, and he steps up and stops them and says, "Your brothers, why are you fighting each other?" And the aggressor of the two says to Moses, Who made you a judge and ruler over us? Are you going to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses realizes that someone knew what he had done, and now his life may be in danger. And so Moses leaves Egypt. The book of Exodus says he was afraid. Hebrew says he was not fleeing for fear, but out of reverence for God. And so he apparently had two motives at least. But Moses leaves Egypt and goes to a land called Midian. Midian is near to, near to Egypt, uh, up a ways and across from, the, from between there and the uh, land of Israel or Palestine. When he comes to Midian, <clears throat> he finds, first of all, a well 
and there are sisters there drawing water for their sheep. These sisters are daughters, it turns out, of a priest who apparently worships the true God, as Melchizedek did back in the day of Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. This priest is named Jethro. He's also called Ruel, which means a friend of God. The shepherds begin to taunt the girls and give them trouble. Moses steps in. He must have been a stout fellow, having killed the Egyptian earlier. And now he takes on a group of shepherds and single-handedly delivers the girls from their harassment. The girls return the favor by inviting him home for a meal. And he goes to their home and meets their father Jethro or Ruel. Ruel thanks Moses for taking care of his daughters. And before long, Moses falls in love with one of the daughters named Zipporah and takes her for his wife. And he has children by her, two sons. And he stays in the land of Midian 40 years. He was 40, by the way, when he left Egypt. He stays in the land of Midian 40 years, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. One day, as he's taking care of his father's sheep, he has a divine encounter. Moses is out on the mountain called Horeb. Later, it's also called Mount Sinai. And as he's somewhere in the region of Mount Horeb, he's watching the sheep, and suddenly he sees something strange over in the distance. He goes over closer to investigate, and there's a bush, maybe a thorn bush. But in the middle of the bush, there's a fire, and yet the bush doesn't burn up. And this is a curious sight. It would get our attention too, I suspect. So Moses comes up closer to investigate. And suddenly there's a voice out of the sky that speaks to him and says, Moses, take off your sandals. The ground you are standing on is holy ground. And Moses realizes that he's speaking, being spoken to by God himself. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 26, God says this to Moses. Exodus chapter 3, I should have said. Well, I'm sorry. I've, give me just a second here. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 is what I'm looking for. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned because of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. Verse 9, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are persecuting them. Go now, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so God tells Moses, I'm the God of your ancestors, I had promised to Abram that I would bring the children of Israel out of Egypt someday. I've heard their cry. I've seen their oppression. I've come down from heaven. I'm ready to do it. And you're the man. Moses is now nearly 80 years old. And the young man who at age 40 thought that he could save Israel by himself, now at age 80, thinks he can't even do it with God's help. And so he begins to make a series of excuses. Moses says... Not me, surely not me. God says, yes, I've chosen you. Moses said, I can't speak. God says, who do you think invented mouths in the first place? I'll give you words to say. Besides that, your brother Aaron will come meet you and he'll be your spokesman. Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? And he says, tell them that the God of their fathers has sent you. 
And then uh, Moses makes other excuses and God rebuts them each time. In this conversation, though, God tells Moses a couple of new names that are very significant. Names of God in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And so he's called, first of all, God, just the generic word for God. He's also called the God of your fathers. And this links what's about to happen with the promises God had made to Abraham and repeated to Isaac and repeated to Jacob. This is the God of history. God is the God who sees the end from the beginning. In the book of Isaiah, God says, I'm able to declare what I will do and to do it and to proclaim it because I am God and I have all the power. And so nobody can stop me. And so I can predict things because I will do what I say I will do and no one will interfere And he's going to do that here. And he says, I'm the God of your fathers. And then he says, I am who I am. The great I am. God is the ever-present one, the eternal one. But this is not simply talking about God's presence. It's also talking especially about his activity. The fuller meaning of I am who I am is I am who I need to be. I will be who I need to be for my people at any given moment. And so God, through the Bible, has given many other names, such as the God who sees, or the God who hears, or the God who delivers, or the God who provides, because God always is able to meet His people's need. He's ever-present in our lives, and He's able to deal with any situation that arises in your life. He is the I Am. He's not the God of the past. He is the God of the future, but He's always the God of the present. And then God gives Moses this other word. Verse 15 of chapter 3, God said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Yahweh, in our version it says, The Lord, all four letters capitalized. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And so here God gives Moses what's called his covenant name. Yahweh, W-H-Y-H. Or rather, Y-H-W-H. Sometimes in English, it's J-H-V-H. This word Yahweh means the one who is. It's a third person way of speaking. God says of Himself, I am who I am. His people call Him He who is what He is. For Him, He is what He is, and He says, I am. For us, He is what He is, and we refer to Him that way. And that's what these four letters in Hebrew mean. The Jews considered this name too sacred to pronounce. They called it the Tetragrammaton, the sacred four letters. And when they would read their Bibles and come to this holy word of four letters, which had no vowels in Hebrew because Hebrew didn't write with vowels, they would not attempt to pronounce this word, but instead they would say a different word which meant Lord, Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I. It's pronounced almost like E-D-O-N-A-I. And so this was a word they said instead of the word Yahweh when they came to that sacred four-letter name. This word becomes an important word throughout the Old Testament. Later in the English translations, some of the earlier English translations put this word as Jehovah. 
And that's not even a real word in anybody's language. What they did is took the Latinized form of Yahweh, the constants J-H-V-H, and they plugged in the vowels of the word Adonai, as it was pronounced, E-O and A, and they came up with the word Jehovah. So when you see the word Jehovah in the American Standard Version, for example, it's the same as Yahweh in the Revised Standard Version. It's the same as the capital L-O-R-D, all four letters caps, in the NIV and other translations. So God is Jehovah, Yahweh, the God who is, the God who will be what He needs to be, the God who is always there for His people. And this is an important encounter with God in the life of Moses. Moses' final excuse is, what do I do so the people will believe me? At this, God says to Moses, what is that in your hand? And he's got a staff. We've got 13 minutes. And 16 chapters to cover. (laughs) He throws his staff down. It becomes a snake. He picks it up by the tail. It turns back into a shepherd's rod. He puts his hand in his cloak, takes it out. It's leprous. He puts it in again, takes it out. It's white, it's, it's as pure as a baby's skin. And God says, show the children of Israel these signs and they will believe you. And then Moses goes to Egypt, picks up his brother Aaron who meets him on the way, encounters the elders of Israel, tells them, the God of your fathers has sent me. He shows them these two signs. They believe Moses. Moses and Aaron, his brother, go to the Pharaoh. And they say, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Who do you think you are? And Moses says, We're not much, but our God's pretty significant. That's a paraphrase. (laughs) Moses is 80 years old at this time. And so there follows on the heels of Pharaoh's rejection of God's command a power plagues, ten plagues that I call a power play of plagues, the battle of the gods. The Egyptians worshipped just about everything in nature. One of their great gods was the Nile because they didn't have freshwater wells and all their water for crops came from the Nile. Every year the Nile flooded and it would, it would flow over and irrigate crops and they would dig channels to use for irrigation and collect water and use for irrigation of their crops. So the Nile was one of their gods. They worshipped frogs. They worshipped livestock. Bulls were great symbols of deity in the Pharaoh household particularly. They believed that the son of Pharaoh was a son of God and was, would be a God himself. And so they had many gods. And when God brings the plagues on Pharaoh's house, on the Egyptians, he's showing them that he is the true God who conquers all of their gods. This is a battle of the gods, much as in the days of Elijah when he encounters the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which you may remember. And so we see God's power in these plagues, first of all, in divine timing. God will say to Moses, tell Pharaoh tomorrow a certain thing will happen. And then it happens. And then Pharaoh halfway repents and says, ask God to remove this plague. And Moses says, on one occasion, I'll give you the privilege of saying when it will be removed. He says, tomorrow. Moses says, okay, tomorrow it'll happen. And it's removed. But the plagues come in God's timing. The plagues come also with divine intensity. It'll say after many of these plagues, this was the worst hailstorm that ever fell in Egypt in all of its history, or language like that. And so the plagues come with divine timing, they come with divine intensity, and they come with divine selectivity. After the first two plagues, they don't come on the children of Israel, only on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. 
And so God shows himself to be God by these plagues. Let's go to the one with the plagues. The first plague turned the waters of the Nile into blood. God told Moses, stretch out your rod over the Nile. And he does, and the Nile River turns into something like blood. Some people believe this was certain kind of algae and whatever. It certainly made the Nile not potable. It was no good for drinking. It couldn't be used for their crops. It was a judgment against the Nile as a god of the Egyptians. The blood not only happened in the Nile, it happened in all their pots and their houses. And their stone pots and their wooden troughs all were suddenly full of what looked like blood as well. Pharaoh halfway repents, says to Moses, ask God to remove it, I'll let them go. Moses prays to God, he says he'll remove it tomorrow, he does. And Pharaoh says, just kidding, had my fingers crossed. And Moses says, alright, let's have another dose, and this time it'll be frogs. And so frogs come hopping out of the Nile, maybe because it's turned to blood. And they come over the land of Egypt, and everywhere you look, there's frogs hopping. And these are probably slimy frogs. And they come to the houses, and they go in the houses. And they go in the kitchen, and they get in the oven, and they get on the food, and they climb in the cabinets. And they go to bed in the bedrooms, and they crawl under the covers. And the Egyptians start to go to bed that night, and there's a frog in the bed. And they get out in the middle of the night, and there's a frog on the floor. Everywhere frogs. Terrible thing to envision. It's funny to us, but it wasn't to them. They worship frogs, and this is a stroke against their gods as well. Pharaoh halfway repents, the frogs leave, he changes his mind, and God says, all right, it'll be gnats this time. The King James Version called them lice, and the land is filled with a plague of gnats. That's followed by a plague of flies, which may have come from the gnats, maybe these were larvae. That's followed by a plague on the livestock, and all their animals that were outdoors of the Egyptians are smitten with a disease that may have been anthrax. That's followed when Pharaoh doesn't change his mind and let them go by a plague of boils on the men and the animals, the people and their livestock in Egypt. And this may have been what's called skin anthrax. That's followed by a hailstorm, which the Bible says there had never been one like in all the history of Egypt and never would be again. This is not only hail, but heavy rain. Not only that, but thunder and lightning that strikes the ground. This is happening probably in the time of year when half of Egypt's crops are almost mature and the other half are not yet coming out. And everything that's mature is totally destroyed by the hailstorm and the lightning. Pharaoh says, I'll do anything you say, get rid of this hail. God stops the hail. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let them go. And God sends a plague next of locusts. The Bible says an east wind blows in the locusts. Pharaoh repents, supposedly a west wind blows the locusts off into the sea. He changes his mind. A plague of darkness comes. For three days it's dark in Egypt. This is a stroke against Ra, the sun god. And then finally, Moses says, one more plague and you'll be begging us to leave. On a certain night, which we will later call the great Passover, there will be the death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. And that happens. God tells His people, put blood over the door of your houses. Kill a lamb. Could be a a kid of a goat or a sheep. And take this blood and put it over the door of your houses. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and you will not be struck with this death angel. You're to kill that lamb and then roast it and eat it in a Passover meal because I pass over your house. You're to eat bitter herbs with it and unleavened bread. And this will become the first month in your calendar year throughout the rest of your history. And every year you're to observe this feast of Passover. 
And remember that I passed over your house when I came in judgment against them. There are similarities between their Passover and our salvation in Jesus Christ. We just have time to barely mention them. The wrath of God against His enemies. The deliverance of God for those who are His people. His people are marked with blood. Our hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, Hebrews tells us. The lamb dies. In their case, a real lamb. In our case, Jesus, the lamb of God. They were to clean out the leaven from their house. We're told in Corinthians to clean out the leaven of sin and wickedness from our lives. They were to remember what God had done to save them. And we remember in the Lord's Supper and by our holy living what God has done for us. Pharaoh is sending them out. He says, get out of here. I don't want to see you again. They take off. They come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind. He comes up behind them with 600 chariots plus more of his army and says, go get these guys. We don't want our slaves to get away. The people say to Moses, you brought us out here to die. God, Moses says to God, what do I do now? God says, take that staff in your hand, stretch it out over the sea. Whether this is the Red Sea or a tributary of it called the Sea of Reeds, it doesn't make much difference. Whatever it was, <coughs> when Moses does this, the waters of the, of the sea roll back, make a path of dry land, the Israelites go through it. It's night at this time. A cloud comes between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It's dark on the side of the Egyptians, but light on the side of Israel. And so the Israelites get across the sea. Pharaoh comes into the sea behind them. When the Israelites are nearly safely out, God makes the chariot wheels fall off of Pharaoh's chariots. And then He makes Moses, when they get out of the sea, stretch his rod again over the sea, and the waters come back and Pharaoh's army is drowned. Pharaoh is finished. And this becomes a song of, of a, a theme of songs in the book of Psalms and in the prophets as well. And the children of Israel go into the desert. It's actually desert, not desert. They learn here that God provides as He guides. They lack water. They come to a place at Marah, which means bitter. The water was bitter. God tells Moses, put a piece of a certain tree in the water. He does, and the water becomes drinkable. They're hungry. They cry out to Moses and complain. God says to Moses, I'll send them quail in the evening. And they have so much quail, they get sick at their stomach eating it. Then he says, in the morning when the dew is gone, there'll be something left. And there was a little white wafer on the ground, all over the ground. And the children of Israel said, Mana, Mana, which means, what is it in Hebrew? And so they call it Mana, Manna. And it's God's food from heaven, which is a type of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. God provides as He guides. He gives them food and water in the wilderness. He finishes what He begins. He does that with us as well. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God will see us through to the end. God provides as He guides and finishes what He begins for those who are His people. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. With the Israelites were many people who were unbelievers, and they die in the wilderness. With us sometimes in the visible church are people who are unbelievers who pretend to be believers. The Bible teaches the security of the believer, but it doesn't teach the security of the make-believer. And so we're exhorted to try ourselves, test ourselves, be sure that we're really people who believe, but if we are, we know God will keep us. And these two themes are both put in the Baptist faith and message, paragraph 5, under God's purpose of grace, which says, All true believers endure to the end. 
those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Finally, they come in the children of Israel's story to Mount Sinai, Covenant Mountain. And so we conclude with this final comparison of Israel and Jesus. Israel comes out of the wilderness, comes out of Egypt. Jesus comes out of Egypt after his infancy flight to escape Herod. Israel goes out of Egypt to cross the water. Jesus goes into the water at Jordan in Matthew 3 to be baptized by John. Israel comes out of the water into the desert. Jesus comes from his baptism in Matthew 4 into the desert. They're there to be tempted, to be hungry, to see if they will obey God. Jesus is tempted, he's hungry, to see if he will obey God. Israel is there 40 years. Jesus is there 40 days. Israel does not obey God. Jesus does. And then Israel comes to the mountain where God gives them His law. Jesus in Matthew 5 comes to a mountain where He explains the spiritual meaning of God's law. The Old Testament is full of New Testament premonitions. The faithful covenant God who made promises to Abraham and kept them in Moses will certainly keep all that He has promised to us for the sake of His Son, Jesus Christ. May the grace of God be with us all.